Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum, where we explore the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to intimate and patriarchal violence and the intersections with HIV. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. I am so delighted to have with us Gabriela Zapata Alma. I would like to invite you to introduce yourself to begin with, to just um, get to know who you are, where you're based, and um, what you do there. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be a part of this and to be in connection and conversation with you. So first and foremost, I'd say that I'm a community member. I am a person who really hopes to make a difference in my community and really hopes to contribute so that people can live lives that are free of violence and that people can live just whole lives in connection with one another and connection with the earth as well. And then, um, you know, after that, uh, you know, a member of my family, I would say family is really core to me. Mm-hmm. And so being a parent, being a partner, being um, a child, you know, being a sibling, um, just, yeah, being a part of my family. Um And after that, I'd say I'm a person with lived experience. And that really informs how I see things and how I move in the world. Um, A person with lived experience of violence, of substance use, of mental health. Um, And so really keeping those experiences um, at the center of what I do, as well as continuing to connect with people who are closer to that lived experience than I am at this point and Mm -hmm. making sure that we're always rooting in that lived lived experience. Um, And then on top of all of that, I am the Associate Director of the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma and Mental Health. And so we're a national resource center dedicated to the intersections of trauma, mental health, substance use, and domestic violence. And when we think about trauma, we don't just think about it on an individual level. Um, We also think about it on a collective and historical level. Um, So there's, there's traumas that, that can be done, can be done to us that we can experience and go through. Um, And then there's also just the kind of trauma of everyday living in Mm. systems that um, weren't built for our well-being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In some ways, we are, it is designed to not let us thrive or survive, but we survive despite. Yes. Wow. Thank you for that layered and deeply resonant introduction because I, 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 yes, I can relate to so much of what you shared and, um, you know, it, 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 everything you shared actually, and the way you shared it really is a beautiful introduction to our topic today because we're really looking at intersecting experiences and the ways that these experiences layer on top of each other to create vulnerabilities and also to present meaningful solutions that are really people-centered. So whether we're thinking about substance use, HIV, um, intimate partner violence, these the populations that are both vulnerable to these um, issues in their lives and also surviving them um, overlap considerably for lots of reasons, not the least of which is oppression and marginalization. And I, I, one of the things that I've really appreciated about doing HIV-related um, work is the ways that they have 
um, the people working in the field and providing HIV care have really learned from and adopted the harm reduction model that um, folks working in substance use prevention and response have developed over many years of really understanding the needs of, um, of people using substances. And so, you know, if we can see that um, people who are experiencing or living with living in stigmatized experiences that the that the stigma is at kind of the center the driving force of vulnerability um we can also see that the models that have been created by for and about populations that have been stigmatized can really meet the needs of the wider population it's like a it's like a beautiful illustration of the ways that um equity frameworks or models that center people with most lived experience are successful. Okay, so just to begin, we did, you know, when we had an episode with Dinah Ortiz a while ago, encourage listeners to check that one out also, also on harm reduction. And one of the questions I asked was, what is the harm reduction movement? What, how would you characterize it? And she used the language of it's a way of life. It's, it applies to everything you do from your most intimate family relationships to work to creating better systems for people using drugs. Like all of these things are um, part of it. But I'd love to hear your response. How would you help us just understand what is the harm reduction movement? Mm-hmm. Um, And I also want to echo like, yes, yes, yes. Check out the episode with Dinah. Dinah is amazing. I am such a big fan of hers. And I love hearing what she said, because when I heard this question, the first thing that came to mind was harm reduction is a way of life. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it was like 100% echoing what Dinah said. Um, And so what I'll add to that is that, you know, harm reduction is the way we relate to everything. It's, um, it's how, I mean, even within a medical model and medical practice, harm reduction is the basis of how we practice any kind of health. And that the only reason it has had to become a movement and a word when it comes to substance use is because of the way that substance use has been weaponized to oppress and discriminate against certain groups of people, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, in that way, you know, I would say the harm reduction movement is people who are being actively oppressed and discriminated against and scapegoated, right? And blamed, binding together, to unapologetically claim Hmm. our human rights and unapologetically live our lives Hmm. and in the process, take care of one another in ways that are really meaningful and really effective and not hung up on some kind of moralizing Hmm. or judgment. So mm-hmm. as we learn about, um, you know, creating safer environments, um, creating safety for everyone, we know that this is a real kind of cultural shift that we, we recognize that it, it, is, it requires a transformation both inside and out, like inside meaning the people providing care, as well as the communities surrounding the people who are being cared for. And, you know, we can see the ripple effects towards like going upstream or thinking about prevention if we look at it from that perspective. Can you, I mean, just, I wanted to say that as a backdrop to this conversation, because I really think um, the way you introduced yourself kind of illustrates for us um, how we can all begin to think about ourselves, that we belong in a place and from that radiates all of these other identities or experiences. And so I'd love for you to start by talking about these intersections that I want us to dive into today in your work, the intersections of partner violence, mental health and substance use. You're the center that you work with looks at this, um, but I'd love to share with our listeners a little more about what you do there and 
and what your particular priorities and investments are in this kind of intersection. Absolutely. And so for us, it's really looking at that um, violence and trauma have mental health and substance use effects. And really, the only reasons we even kind of have um, a separate word for those effects is because as a culture, as a society, we haven't really recognized how trauma is the root of so many of these different experiences. And that's reflected throughout all of our different systems, right? Mm. The criminalization of mm. being a survivor. If we actually understood trauma, we none of that would exist, right? Yeah. Um, we wouldn't have systems that re-victimized people for the very trauma they've experienced. And so we look at um, we look at those intersections, but then on top of that, we also look at how the any experiences of mental health or substance use, whether or not they meet any criteria for um, kind of a, what would be considered a diagnosable disorder using a medical model, um, that there's also just a range of diversity in mental health experiences and in substance use experiences that gets then pathologized within a lot of systems and gets unnecessarily um, problematized. And that then stigma applied to mental health and substance use, as well as just being a survivor of any kind of trauma Mm -hmm. that also carries stigma, that all of that stigma is then used to further oppress, discriminate, and harm. And so we also look at the ways that, um, for example, the criminalization of substance use um, leads to disproportionate uh, incarceration and oppression of survivors, particularly survivors of color, particularly LGBTQ survivors, Mm -hmm. particularly survivors experiencing housing instability, right? Mm -hmm. That anywhere where there is targeting and risk and oppression, that then any kind of stigma related to that experience gets leveraged to further harm. And so um, we also look at, you know, how the very systems that are meant to help survivors experiencing intimate partner violence, mental health, trauma, substance use, how those very systems then can get turned around and leveraged as a a tool of punishment. Mm -hmm. So really um, trying to um, neutralize that punishment, trying to support systems and actually being accessible, safe and supportive and voluntary Uh so that people don't get end up don't end up getting caught up in systems, but can choose to use them and expect a reasonably helpful and safe response. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll add to that while also expanding outside of existing systems. Mm -hmm. So also recognizing that, for example, the medical models of mental health and substance use and trauma are not the only ways to understand these experiences, are not the only ways that people engage in healing. And that particularly for people who may experience either discrimination in these systems or may not have access to these systems or only get mandated and not actually be able to have choice in their services, that for many people, their healing very well lies outside of established systems. Mm -hmm. And you're referring to maybe like traditional uh, approaches or more community-based or elder healer kind of oriented approaches. Is that what you're referring to? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like, especially thinking about yeah, immigrant communities, indigenous communities, black communities where there are legacies of healing and support that have had to exist outside of the mainstream medical model, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And that people have been doing healing work for millennia and the medical model is kind of a blip. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And even the notion of mental health or or pathologizing any diversion from what's like 
productive for capitalism um, is is in itself raises a lot of questions. But yes, <laughs> we are speaking the same language. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I'm interested in hearing what you've seen, like how are domestic violence programs in particular um, getting better at making some strides in the direction of supporting survivors that are using drugs? I know there have been, there has been a legacy of, you know, well, different kinds of choices around zero tolerance or, you know, in shelter settings or creating really rigid walls and boundaries around substances. What kinds of shifts or um, advancements have happened have, that you've seen or noticed in, in the DV movement? Yes, you know, a huge piece here has been the, um, the recognition and expansion and adoption of low barrier services. Mm-hmm. So looking at um, how do we truly create services that are truly low barrier, truly accessible, um, truly non-judgmental, and truly survivor-led and survivor-defined. And so anywhere where we see programs being able to adopt and really pushing the boundaries around low barrier services, mm-hmm. then we see also that accessibility and that um, safety and effectiveness improving for survivors who use substances and who may experience you know, kinds of mental health that may, may be stigmatized or that people may experience discrimination around their mental health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something I'll say here is that a lot of times um, a program might label something as mental health or an advocate might label something as mental health when it's actually not anything having to do with any kind of mental health diagnosis. And it's just a completely normal and natural response mm-hmm. to having survived a crisis. Right, that there that this is just <laughs> um, when I am training people on the medical model of trauma. I will often say, for this time period, there is no diagnosable mental health disorder. This is just something terrible was done to you, and you are having a totally natural, normal, like mm-hmm. physiological and you know emotional response to it. And all of those responses, while they can be really distressful for a person, are actually quite protective as well. They're really yeah. the our body's attempts to protect us, right, in yeah. the face of that crisis. And so I also just want to just wanted to say that real quickly too, that sometimes um, we've been told this is a mental health thing and it's it's not at all. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just a totally normal response to crisis mm-hmm. um, or total, I should say, typical response to crisis. Mm-hmm. Which totally transforms the, the response of the service provider to see it as a, this is a predictable and typical response. Let's create a cushion of safety around this person until they find their way back to where, you know, yes. they, they're in touch with reality or whatever is the situation in the moment, because we do have to let go of the, the reality in order to survive sometimes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, so with the movement around low barrier services, voluntary services, that's been absolutely a game changer. And then another piece that I've seen really growing is um, understanding, just understanding substance use and potentially, you know, mental health um, and and very stigmatized, you know, mental health experiences as those trauma responses. And sometimes for some programs, that means being able to understand trauma from like an injury model, that there has been an injury and that, you know, the safety and the healing environment, that everything in nature moves towards healing. It's a matter of having that healing-centered engagement and that healing environment around it. And so what we're seeing is not... um, something that needs to be controlled. It's not something we need to make a rule around. It's not something Mm -hmm. that we need to, you know, um, 
it's not an illness that someone needs to get to a physician for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless, of course, at some point in time, someone expresses an interest and desire in engaging with a specialist around it. But instead, looking at it as um, a wound and what are the kind of basic elements of the environment for that wound to heal on its own, right? Mm. And that, of course, understanding that that doesn't mean that we withhold information on resources that a person may find helpful, but that it's not about pushing resources onto or services onto a person. It's about really meeting them where they are and creating that safe environment. And that includes a relational environment. Yeah. Right. So when someone is in a safe, supportive housing program or whether it's shelter, transitional housing, housing first, you know, and something comes up around substance use or something comes up around some kind of program expectation, very often the first thing that a person that a survivor is wondering is, am I going to get kicked out because of this? Right. Mm -hmm. And if that is true, that's not a safe environment of healing. Mm-hmm. That's an environment that is just more survivor, so like survival and crisis yeah. mode, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the difference here is really focusing on building that environment of safety and healing in our relationships, in our programs, mm-hmm. um, and in our policies, right? Certainly. Mm-hmm. And then something else that I've really seen um, programs taking on that has been so exciting is breaking down silos and collaboration. Mm -hmm. So knowing that being able to access a resource safely is hard for any community member. Accessing resources is not easy in our Mm -hmm. communities. Yes. And then especially in the context of intimate partner violence and in the context of all the different intersecting oppressions that people experience that then increase risk of intimate partner violence and make it more difficult to Mm -hmm. navigate intimate partner violence and cultivate safety, right? And so anywhere where we can centralize access to a resource, it's It's not a one-size-fits-all solution, but it can make things much easier for survivors. And so I've seen programs who are um, creating access to safer use materials within their program. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, someone comes into that safe shelter and has access to um, new syringes, has access to cotton and cookers and fentanyl testing strips and, you know, naloxone, right? Has access to all those things right there. Mm -hmm. Now, there's still going to be somebody who is going to see that and go, this is a trap. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely no way that I am going to be the person who grabs that, you know, Mm -hmm. material. And so it's still important to have working relationships with those syringe service programs, with those community naloxone programs, which very often are one and the same. So people can still have choice Mm -hmm. around how they access those materials. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's been a wonderful, wonderful innovation that I've been seeing in the DV field. Um, And then on the mental health side, having those mental health supports in-house while still offering it as a voluntary service, that it's not, you know, everybody here must meet with the therapist or everybody must meet at least once. No, 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 right? That it's still voluntary services, And that any mental health and substance use support that's offered in-house is offered still within the DV advocacy framework of voluntary services, of being DV-informed, DV-aware, having an empowerment-based approach. Mm -hmm. And that's another layer that we strive to support at the National Center is that, um, you know, so for, for a while, we were saying, you know, make this available in-house. And we still say this, right? Um, but then saw some folks 
really be able to tap into some new funding or make things work to be, or through some collaboration, make it available in-house. But then because this is such a new innovation, you know, the person making it available in-house is kind of not necessarily picked up the empowerment or the DV framework yet. And yeah. so then at that point going, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we need another layer here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So it's make it available in-house and also still have it be consistent within that philosophy of the movement. Oh my goodness, you just hit so many important points that I, I don't need to reiterate, obviously. But the thing that I want to like drill into a little bit, I really appreciate, okay, this layering you say, okay, in the DB movement, we have this beautiful value of, or one of our goals, especially in our, our healthcare work, which we've been doing, you know, at Futures, is really reducing barriers, increasing autonomy, incre- like what, what happens when someone is victimized, their choices are taken away, they're, you know, all kinds of anything that builds up their sense of self and worth and everything is eroded and and they lose autonomy, self-determination and, and every possible way in our DV programs that we can to increase autonomy, self-determination is great. Yet when it comes to mental health resources and substance use, um, either resources to um, use safely or to get off of use, is highly controlled and and autonomy is often not the center of that process or the, the sort of approach to caring for people who are using or um, needing mental health support. So this encouragement to apply what we know about caring for survivors to this work also, it's like this, and, and, you know, because I came into this conversation thinking, I want us to apply what we've learned about harm reduction in the substance use movement to how we provide care in the DV movement, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're encouraging us to think in both and, that that there's a lot that we have also figured out in DV work that we need to apply to the way we integrate this kind of care Um when, when people need supports. And I, I really appreciate that sort of noticing that corollary there. So, I mean, we might, you might have already started talking about this, but I'd love for you to help us see what some of the barriers DV programs might face when they're trying to better support survivors using drugs. I, I think your, your last point really starts to point at, like get specific about this, that, you know, you know, we bring people in, we bring in new models, but they're so new, there aren't, it isn't well integrated into how we think. But if there are other thoughts you have about some of the barriers, people that we might be encountering in our DV work, um, yes, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So there's, um, there's a lot of barriers, starting with stigma, starting with sure. all the ways that then when stigma is unchecked, um, it becomes a huge portal for any kind of racism, classism, sexism, right? All the different forms of oppression and ways that people are targeted based on their social identity just come right in there, right? Um, and so, but I think that specifically in the DV field, um, I think that one thing that comes up is this um, this myth that substance use produces violence. Mm-hmm. And it is a myth for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, many of us in the DV movement have our own experiences of surviving victimization, surviving violence and trauma. And very well, people who we may have been harmed by may have been people who were under the influence at the time or experiencing withdrawal or may have interacted with substances in some way. Because frankly, you know, substance use, particularly alcohol use, is very common, right? It's very common. And so chances are that um, some of us have experienced, who have experienced harm, have experienced some overlap with harm from someone who has used substances in some way. And so, um, and so for many people, one piece is unlearning 
and clarifying that myth that people who may use power and control, people who may cause harm, um, may also use substances, but that it's not the substance that is the cause of that harm. And we have we have some research that points to this, that when people who cause harm only get some help around substance use, that that doesn't actually make a difference in their use of power and control and the abuse of an intimate partner, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That really integrated services for both causing harm and the substance use um, is most effective for somebody who is using substances and causing harm, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's one piece that is... um, kind of like an an echo of trauma that we many times need to contend with um, Mm -hmm. among and support staff to be able to um, kind of unlearn that myth, but then also potentially if there is that kernel there of trauma, be able to heal that Mm -hmm. aspect, right? And so that's one piece that that comes up commonly. Another piece is... um, that in a lot of DV services, people many times work very independently. And there's this fear of, well, you know, we have one staff member on, or we only are staffed during these hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if a crisis were to happen and there weren't enough staff, or there was no staff, you know, maybe overnight and a crisis happens, um, you know, we need to then screen out because we can't handle the crisis mm-hmm. that comes up if someone is using substances. And so a piece to unlearn there is that. Um, substance use does not equal crisis. Mm -hmm. That our programs need to be prepared to support people in crisis because our program is a human service program and that any human can experience crisis, including ourselves, right? And so regardless of whether or not somebody is using substances or has a substance use history, our programs need to be prepared to support people who may experience crisis. And our programs also need to be aware of what are the things that may um, kind of increase the risk of crisis, right? Um, So that, and what are the kind of early warning signs that someone may be experiencing Mm -hmm. crisis or may experience, maybe at risk for experiencing crisis? And how do we tune into people and how do we support people? And then on the other hand as well, um, that, you know, we, the scarcity is real in many of our services. Our services are not funded adequately. And any time that we are working in human services, the need will, because of the way that services are set up and funding is set up, this, the need exceeds the resource 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we cannot base our service model on that and exclude people who so, who so desperately need the service. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when we do set up our services to screen people out, all that means is that people with these experiences actually are still in our programs, but we have now told them that they can't talk about it with us. They go underground. Absolutely. And then that makes crisis that much more likely. Because if I can't talk about it, I can't safety plan around it, then what's going to happen, right? Crisis is going to increase. Oh, I'm sure many, many people listening are like nodding their heads being like, I have seen this. I know what you mean. So can you help us draw some cleaner lines, some clearer links between safety planning, which you just brought up, and and efforts uh, to do harm reduction? Like, I, I really want people to get a good picture of some of the ways that these are connected, how they where they overlap and how they can how harm, a harm reduction approach can really enhance safety planning. Yes, 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 yes. So something that I love to say, and I will say until I'm blue in the face, is that the only reason that we have the words harm reduction when it comes to substance use is because of the deep legacies 
of using scapegoating substances and scapegoating people who use substances Mm -hmm. as a way to exert power and control over people and oppress people. Mm -hmm. And that harm reduction is the way that we approach everything in our lives constantly. Yeah. So the only reason the words exist is because of the vast discrimination against people who use substances and trying to use that as a mechanism of control of um, people of color, of women, of LGBTQ people. So advocates practice harm reduction every single day when it comes to domestic violence and sexual violence, every single day. Mm -hmm. And the same way that we learned very early on in the DV movement that um, if you were only going to serve people who had left a relationship or were planning to leave, um, that not only would you not be accessible to survivors, but actually you'd probably be making things much more dangerous for survivors. Mm. That the very, and survivors would be left feeling judged and not helped, right? And on top of all of the judgment and emotional abuse they already experience, right? Mm -hmm. That the exact same thing is true when somebody has a relationship with substances. Mm. And many times advocates feel that if somebody is using substances, that they're completely out of their depth, that they have no idea how to help this person, that they just have to get this person to somebody who is a specialist in substance use. Mm-hmm. And while somebody, you know, if a survivor is at a point where they're interested in meeting with a substance use specific resource, whether that's with a harm reduction organization, a formal substance use disorder treatment, or uh, maybe a peer uh, recovery coach, right? Like, any part of the kind of substance use support uh, resource, any resource that may exist around substance use support, that yes, if somebody wants that, if someone's ready for that, awesome. Let's get them linked. Let's safety plan around their access. Let's be doing that community engagement and education so the provider that we're referring to is actually DV aware and is safe and accessible and effective for for that survivor. Absolutely. But... (laughs) There is so much we can do to support survivors who use substances that has nothing to do with getting them to somebody else. And that we actually already have the keys to be able to help somebody. And that is taking everything we know as advocates and safety planning and just applying it to substance use, Mm -hmm. understanding that substance use is just another relationship that may contain some risk or some danger. Mm -hmm. Wow, put in those terms, it's just so direct, so simple. And rooted in what you said earlier, that we are providing a human service. Like, we just recognize that there are pathways into supporting people navigating complex relationships. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was beautiful. Thank you. I I'm, I mean, I want to ask you, you mentioned this already um, about how, you know, it's, it's helpful to bring in, um, let's say, ser- resources, services into the domestic violence program to support people using drugs, but also having those partnerships outside in the community so people have choices you know, resonates. That makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder if there's something more that you can share about partnerships, like who people should really be thinking about. Like, are there unlikely partners that would be really worthwhile? Um, Or maybe unlikely is the wrong word, but new partners that people have not yet thought about very well or um, clearly. Um, Yeah, anything you want to share to go a little deeper there? Yes, So I think anywhere where um, you're seeing a need in your programs and anywhere where you feel any kind of pressure or reflex to screen someone out or anywhere where you, you know, even Mm. looking at, for example, if you're a shelter, you know, what are some of the situations that are leading to program exits? 
be, that are kind of unsuccessful, we might say, or, or, you know, someone is maybe even returning to a dangerous situation. So looking at any of those areas and saying, huh, where might there be a resource in the community that might be relevant, might be helpful, or that we could learn from, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, um, and that, okay, and here I'll say not only that we could learn from, but very often that external resource is inaccessible for survivors. And so there's actual mutual mutual mm. information and co-learning that can happen, right? Yes. And then as you're engaged in that cross-training and in that co-learning, you also are building relationship and you now have somebody that you can reach out to when there's a new situation that comes up and you're like, I know there's a better way to handle this. I know that there's something that I haven't thought of that I could be doing differently here. Oh, well, let's call so-and-so. They're, you know, they're aware of DV and they're an expert on this. Let's, you know, talk and just get some tips here, right? And so one piece that folks might not be um, super aware of, you know, is, well, first, harm reduction and harm reduction organizations. Um, And depending on how legal services are in your location, like, Mm -hmm. for example, how legal syringe service programs are, um, they may, it may be easier or harder to find. (laughs) And so they're really getting to know your, what's in your community that might not have kind of like um, a brick and mortar building with, you know, a a sign, (laughs) a big sign out front, right? It may be somebody who is doing something out of the trunk of their car. It may Mm -hmm. be, you know, somebody who has a van who is parked at different locations throughout the week Mm -hmm. in your community. Um, But getting a sense of who are those people and connecting. Mm -hmm. And chances are, because harm reduction programs are so low barrier, chances are there's a whole lot of folks experiencing intimate partner violence and sexual violence who maybe the only resource that's accessible for them has been that syringe service program, that harm reduction program. And there's a lot of good that you can do in engaging in that collaboration and Mm cross-training. So that's one um, kind of area. And then another piece I would say is that um, the recovery movement. The recovery movement has been around for a really long time, but is finally getting more recognition, is getting more funding, is Mm -hmm. being able to actually scale up and become sustainable in ways that it hasn't been in past years, in past decades. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the philosophies around, you know, person-centered approaches, survivor-defined approaches, um, low-barrier approaches, right, mm-hmm. um, approaches that are based empowerment, all of these philosophies are actually shared amongst advocacy programs, harm reduction programs, and then recovery, uh, peer-based um, community organizations. And so it's like everyone's kind of holding a different piece of the puzzle. (laughs) And when we can come together and de-silo, there's so, there's just, it's amazing what can happen in service of survivors. I would love to hear some of what, like, you're finding in your work at your center. Um, Sort of what's on the horizon? Like, where are you... What are you learning? What are the ed- learning edges, so to speak, of wh- what you're figuring out and what you're encountering, um, just to know what we have to look forward to learning from you all? Yes. So um, I would say a, a lot of what we are hearing from communities are things that I feel like people have been saying forever, but it's just that they're big problems that haven't gotten solved yet. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of, um, you know, reinforcing of what we've been hearing and what we know to be true. And then also kind of redoubling our efforts to address these these problems. So a lot of what we're hearing is um, how incredibly inaccessible 
substance use and mental health services are, Mm -hmm. um, how experiences of discrimination um, in different services and how that's a huge part of inaccessibility is the discrimination and discrimination Mm. in all of its forms, right? Racism, um, discrimination that's based on uh, country of origin, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. um, documentation status, all the different ways that discrimination shows up. Um, How our behavioral health systems are so incredibly difficult to navigate. So even when people are really looking for a therapist, how yeah. <laughs> how inaccessible, unaffordable, um, impossible it is to find someone. And then you add the layer of finding someone who is DV aware and is not going to victim blame, how that mm-hmm. then adds another layer of complication um, and how people are re-victimized in services. And then also hearing um, constantly about Um, the challenges with um, child protective service systems and how they're weaponized against survivors and how all an abusive partner needs to do is allege any kind of mental health or substance use. And that then is weaponized as a tool of abuse against survivors. Mm -hmm. And even more so for survivors of color and for LGBTQ Mm -hmm. survivors and survivors without financial resources. Um, And then the criminalization of substance use and in many ways, mental health as well. Um, And so I would say that a lot of the kind of like um, the areas where we are really focusing on are areas that it's not so much that the knowledge or the risk is new, it's that the um, there have been changes that really increase the risk. Um, yes. So let me, so like one area that we are really focused on right now is in um, the intersection of substance use coercion and pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Because we know that with the lack of access to reproductive choice, that is impacting so many survivors right now coupled with reproductive coercion, coupled with substance use coercion, where survivors may be um, coerced or used, uh, forced to use substances, and then on top of that may be using because of emotional or physical pain related to mm-hmm. abuse, that then there is this, this nexus of harm and control that is then... Um, setting people up for so much additional harm, both at the individual level as well as the systemic level. So for example, that a survivor may be um, coerced to become pregnant and coerced to use substances and then um, doesn't have access to reproductive health, the full range Mm -hmm. of reproductive health, and then may experience a miscarriage because of the lack of access to health Mm -hmm. and because of maybe fear to engage in perinatal care because of the criminalization of substance use during pregnancy. And then now that survivor may be charged (laughs) with something around their miscarriage, right? Um, So all of the nexus of harm that is ever increasing for survivors around this intersection. Um, So some things that we're really piloting is, so we had developed a um, toolkit for both substance use disorder treatment as well as primary care providers to use around coercion related to both mental health and substance use because they're often co-occurring. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to like coerce someone around their substance use and not also gaslight them, right? Like this is, they're <laughs> often co-occurring. Uh-huh. And so we are now actually piloting in two different states, um, really adapting this coercion toolkit for use in perinatal care settings. And as a part of that, really helping to shore up collaborations with between the perinatal care setting, advocacy Mm. organizations, and um, recovery coaches, and harm reduction and substance use disorder treatment providers. So 
just trying to really de-silo as well as create all kinds of clinical protocols to address substance use coercion so that survivors don't just continue to encounter systems that are punitive and inaccessible. So exciting and so looking forward to <laughs> learning from what you what you learn along the way. Um, and it's just I got great echoes with what we have been also trying to do at Futures um, with health systems work. So I, I look forward to learning more and implementing what you're what you're learning. So one more question that I like to ask everyone. What's bringing you joy these days? Anything you've read or watched or listened to? Yes. Oh, my goodness. So I would say um, really what's bringing me joy is my family, um, both kind of my my family and my household as well as my chosen family. So um, here in my household, we have two dogs and they are just, oh, they light up our lives. (laughs) And they love each other so much and they're just such snugglers and they're such comedians. And so um, just like our dogs. And then also I have a kiddo who's seven and they are just, uh, they are the center of my universe. I adore them and our time together is so joyous. Um, And I just love getting to see the world through their eyes and sharing with them. And then also um, chosen family. So one of my um, dearest, dearest, dearest friends, um, really a sister. Um, I got to visit her recently. We had this awesome weekend of just like watching cute movies and playing video (laughs) games and getting takeout and taking long walks. And it was just like, yes, this is perfect. Um, So just, yeah, all of that connecting and also it's um spring is right around the corner and it's my favorite season. I have lots of flowers that are going to come up soon, oh. so starting to think about that too. Wonderful. It's been such a joy talking with you, hearing your insights. Thank you so much for your time. And um I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.